This is the first, kind of, I mean, this is a, like just a little planning and prayer day, but still does fit as a part of this series we're going to do this semester on happiness. It's a big topic. And it's kind of not really a simple topic either, because, you know, when we say happiness, what do we mean? And what kind of happiness should we really want? Does it mean just feeling happy? Um, just the, the sensation of being buoyant and cheerful and, um, and all that kind of stuff. Or is it deeper than that? Is what we really mean when we really say, I want to live a good life, something like fulfilment or meaning or satisfaction? Do you know what I mean? Like something more than just the, the best. So there's a famous um, quote that says, um, it's better to be a miserable Socrates than a happy pig. That there's something about uh, the depths of wisdom and knowledge and understanding that comes with being like a great philosopher like Socrates that actually makes for a better life, even if you're sadder than a, a pig who may not plumb the same philosophical depths of the problems of the universe, but is pretty cheerful. <laughs> um, and so we're kind of wrestling with that whole question. Um, uh, but it's, it's not simply a matter of kind of meaning versus feeling happy, because it's possible to do meaningful things but not appreciate them for what they are. And we know that in our Christian life. We've got amazing things in the gospel, but you don't necessarily always appreciate it or feel the contentment or peace that comes from them. And, and so it, it's not just about choosing meaning versus feeling happy, but we should kind of want it, in the end, the deeper meanings in our life to come to mind and come to heart and come to our experience. It gets more complicated too, because um, sometimes the reason we might actually not feel these things might be to do with something else. It might be to do with some part of our physical experience, you know, that uh, you're overtired and you might feel miserable. And then as a result of feeling miserable because you're overtired, you might then start doubting your Christian faith or something. Um, but actually the, the solution may not be more Bible verses. It might just be a good night's sleep. Do, do you know what I mean? So that, that it's a complicated topic, and so that's why giving a whole semester to it means that we can look, look at it from a, a bunch of points of view and see how God's Word speaks into it. Hopefully, the series will just be good for us, that actually, as we go along, even today, you'll go, oh, that really helped me. That, that's really, I'm going to bring that with me in my life this year. So hopefully, it's, it does a good thing for individuals who come along to our events and listen to our podcast and stuff. Um, hopefully it's also really good for those who aren't Christians because I think everyone wants to find meaning, significance, happiness, fulfilment on some level. And so I think it's a relevant topic, but also it's a great window into what Christianity is. You know, that you don't need to just... Um, sharing Christianity doesn't just mean, can I explain to you the basics of the gospel and why Jesus died on the cross for your sins and how you should need to repent and believe? It doesn't have to just be that. It can also be, let me tell you, what it means for me being a Christian, what it's like living the Christian life, how the truths of Christianity affect my everyday life, you know, and, and, and sometimes that, that conversation is probably the more common one you might have with a classmate, you know, over a, over a sort of dessert night or in a uni accommodation. It probably won't be often. So tell me, what is it about this gospel you Christians talk about? Please tell me, what is the salvation that the Lord Jesus offers me? It, it, that often won't be the kind of question you'll get. <laughs> but it might be, oh, how do you think about this as a Christian? Or, you know, you're a Christian, Josh. What do you have to say about that? And, and so hopefully it'll be, for some people, a, a, a useful way into exploring Christianity. There's a pastor and evangelist in, in New York, uh, well, was a, a pastor there, Tim Keller, who, um, who described how people become Christians, especially if they don't come from like a Christian background, don't have much 
pre-existing knowledge. He says it's often a series of little micro steps. You know, it's not just come to one meeting and come to Jesus. But he, he just says it could be something like, first of all, it's like a, an awareness moment of, oh, I, I see it now. Ah, you can be kind of normalish and be a Christian. Ah, oh, Christianity does have a certain sort of logic to it. I see it. Um, and then there's a sort of a, he says, then sometimes it can be a, then a, a, a kind of, oh, a, a relevance, like I need it or it would be good. You know, it's that kind of, oh, I see how being a Christian helps you. Um, or I see how um, that would be cool if I could believe the way you believe, you know, that kind of step. Um, and then it, then it might be the credibility. Oh, actually, there's some reasons for this. There's some arguments behind it. It's not irrational. You know, I kind of, um, I see that it's true or could be true. Um, and then he says, often people will actually kind of almost try it out for a bit. Like they might become a regular churchgoer or a regular small group attender, even maybe try out praying a little bit or, or talk a bit as if they're a Christian a bit, even though they may not have yet fully repented and believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus um, with their heart. So, so there's these steps along the way, and hopefully the happyology thing will be a helpful part of that process, that someone can come along and think with us about what the scriptures say about dealing with suffering and disappointment and heartbreak. Um, and as you wrestle with that, or, you know, the book of Job, what an interesting book. We'll look at that in one of our breakfast meetings and, and thinking through that cool story, that that might be a process of this, you know, oh, I see it, I see how it's relevant, I, I see how it might be true and so on. So as we kick off all of that, today I want to think briefly with us about how the reality of God himself and his nature and our communion with God provides this deep ground for peace and joy and love and uh, that's kind of external to ourselves. Um, it's not as if you're on your own having to kind of conjure up the joy, the peace, the strength on your own, and that's all you can manage. That's kind of the way an atheist has to live if they think about it, you know, like um, the miserable Socrates sort of atheist, you know, the, the philosophical atheist, um, has to go, well, where, what's the ground of joy and meaning and significance? Well, in the end, an atheist has to say, there's no ultimate purpose or meaning, and so I have to make it for myself. There's a cool, um, really descriptive version of this that a famous philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, um, wrote, describing what it's like when you realize, hang on, there's no God at the center of things. It goes like this, Nietzsche writes, Haven't you heard of the madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours and ran into a marketplace and cried incessantly, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. And as many of those who didn't believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked, they provoked, he provoked much laughter. They said, oh, has God got lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Has he emigrated? They yelled and laughed. And the madman jumped in their midst and pierced them with his eyes and said, where is God? I'll tell you, we've killed him. You and I, all of us are his murderers. But how do we do this? How could, and he, he describes this sense of rootlessness. How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the horizon? Um, what were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving now? Where are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backwards, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down? Are we not straying through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Hasn't it become colder 
and on he goes. And that, there's that sense of when you stop and think about it, if there's no deeper sense to reality or the universe, I am just drifting off. It's like the Earth has been unchained from the sun and is drifting off, off into some scary science fiction movie, darkness. Um, there's no up or down, really, ultimately. But the wonderful thing that you have if you're a Christian is that you know God, you, you appreciate the fact that God is there and God is good and God is for you and you're with God. And so he is a a centre or a ground or an ultimate goal for your life. It's kind of outside of how you, you're feeling, how you're going, where you're up to, how smart or strong or weak or whatever you are. God is this, this ground to us. So in order to do that this morning, I thought I'd just share with you a, a, an interesting little um, kind of motif or trope or pattern that you see, in, particularly in the New Testament, of, um, of these of triads, of threes, groups of threes. A really common one is faith, hope, and love. Love, joy, and peace is another. Um, they're all through the New Testament. Now, on one level, threes, uh, three is just a nifty, the triangle, the, the shape of three. It just works well in rhetoric and in poetry and in architecture and whatever else. Um, and there's nothing more to it than that. So it just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> there's an American um, philosopher and theologian called John Frame who makes this huge thing about every three he can think of and says it's all proof of the Trinity. He's like, oh, like you think about it, like there's like slides and swings and merry-go-rounds. See, like the Trinity, you know, and there's like trees that have branches and roots and leaves, the Trinity, see? <laughs> um, and he makes a bit much of, when it's, some of it's just three is a neat way of thinking and whatever. However, it is true that at certain points in the New Testament, an additional attraction to threes at times is because of the Trinity. So um, an example of that is, uh, I mean, you've got your Bibles there. You could have a look at, say, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, oh, that's actually, that, that, the chapter 8 one is just a, just a dyad, you could say, Father and Son. Let's look at chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of services, but the same Lord, the Lord Jesus. There are different kinds of working, but the same God. God the Father works them all in all men. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 13, you get another kind of one that sort of pins itself to a sort of Trinitarian thinking. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the very end of 2 Corinthians. Um, verse 14. You might know this, sometimes churches finish with this at the closing of their services. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there's a real Trinitarian, explicit Trinitarian thing going on there. But it's not always that way. The most famous is faith, hope, and love, and it's not like it's the faith of Jesus, the love of the Father, the hope of the Spirit or something, but it's still a very common one. You see it in, we're in the Corinthians. You see it uh, in chapter 13, <clears throat> um, where it talks about different spirits, 1 Corinthians 13, not 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about uh, the ceasing of spiritual gifts, um, but uh, the the long-standing existing of love. And at the very end of that passage, we read in verse 13, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, that's because the things you hope in, you finally see in the new creation. The things you're trusting in without seeing, you finally receive in fullness. And so then what we now trust in and what we now hope for collapses into the fullness of God being with us. 
you know, in, in the love of eternity. So love is the greatest, it endures forever. Um, but you, you see it throughout the Bible, Galatians 5, you know, faith working itself through love with the hope um, that, uh, that we have of hope of righteousness. Colossians chapter 1, the labour prompted by faith and love and the hope um, of the saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, faith, hope and love pops up in lots of places. And that's certainly a plank of Christian experience and life and time and God that we trust in what God has done and keep trusting in it. Uh, we hope for what God will do. And as we're trusting in what God has done and hope in what God will do, we love as, as the response in, in the present time. But what we're going to be spending the rest of our time on is thinking about the triads that are particularly uh, about, um, about God himself and God's work for us rather than our trusting in him and hoping in him and, and loving because of him. Um, there's other ones, I'll just list off a bunch here, that, that kind of capture more the, the focus of what God does and God's uh, nature and God's priorities. Jesus speaks about centrality of the law in Matthew 22, is, is justice, mercy and faithfulness. That's the, the core characteristics of God and his priorities. He's not primarily concerned with tithing and cleaning unclean animals. Fundamentally, Jesus says, he's concerned about justice, mercy and faithfulness. That's a cool description of God's character, isn't it? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Here in uh, John 14, as we read, and throughout this section of Jesus' teaching in John 14 that we read, um, is love, joy, and peace throughout that section. Uh, Romans chapter 5, um, he speaks about um, boasting in um, the hope we have, the love poured out in our hearts, um, the faith we have that justifies us. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 14 speaks about um, the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. So love, joy, peace, justice, mercy, faithfulness, righteousness, peace, joy. Romans 15 verse 13 says this, Romans 15 13, um, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you have faith in him, so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a value add, hope, joy, peace, and faith. Um, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, we already read, grace, love, and fellowship. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, is actually three triads. Here they are. Are they all here? There's, there's some of them. Gentleness, self-control, goodness, love, joy, peace. Um, love, joy, peace, first triad. Patience, kindness, goodness, the second. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, Colossians 1 has knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. There's a bunch of these uh, overlapping concepts about the very nature of God that is central to reality, central to then what God gives to us, and then what works itself out in our lives. Occasionally they're just dyads, there's two of them. Uh, the law came through Moses, John chapter 1 says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, or at the start of all Paul's letters, how does he begin his letters? What's his greeting? Grace and peace. So grace and peace. Um, grace and love is at the end of 1 Corinthians 16. Love and peace at the end of 2 Corinthians 13. Joy and peace is the theme of Philippians chapter 4. There's a lot of commonality, isn't there? Like, they may not be exact. Like, whereas faith, hope, and love is a pretty locked-down one, this has a bit more variety, but it captures that thing. It's the kindness, the mercy, the love of God, um, the peace that is in him, that he gives to us, that he brings us into, reconciling us, but then enjoying an ongoing state of a harmonious relationship, um, his love to us, the joy and delight he has in himself, he has in us, that we have in him. 
They capture these foundational realities of God's blessing that is central to Christian experience. It's not about eating and drinking. It's not about the minor matters of the law. It's not about merely going through ritual. Um, but it's about these deep things. Grace and peace and joy and love and so on. Our lives and relationship to God and his blessings to us. It's a cool way of thinking about being a Christian. What does it mean to you to be a Christian? Grace and peace. <laughs> love, joy and peace. <laughs> um, it, it means that, That's what it means for me to be a Christian. Now, having observed those triads and a couple of dyads and so on, um, let's first think about what that means for God himself. Older theologians at times warned about the risk in talking about God as having emotions, or they would use passions in quite the same way we do. And it's a good warning because for humans, emotions and passions, like those, those have an overlap in, in older English, um, they're necessarily entangled to our physical experience. My experience of happiness goes along with certain brain behaviours and physical behaviours. And, and so it's, it's, it's hard uh, to talk about happiness in that human sense without bringing together these physical and mental sensations, right? Love, the same. Uh, joy, the same, and, and so on. Uh, whereas God is spirit. God isn't physical. He doesn't have a brain. He doesn't have a body. And, and so his experience of those things aren't the same as ours. And yet the Bible still will use, will speak about the love of God, the delight of God, the grieving of God, the mourning of God. So you've got to hear that warning. God's not just a bigger human. Um, uh, God's experience, for example, of anger, isn't, that's the strong one, isn't it? Because for humans, anger boiling, increasing heart rate, um, it, it, it couples with it irritation and, and um, surges of various hormones and all these kinds of things. God's anger is not like human anger. You know, his, his just uh, strong opposition to sin is more than just rational, but it's not um, fury in, in that kind of uh, human tantrum sort of way. Do you know what I mean? Um, Nevertheless, God is described as loving, rejoicing, delighting, being grieved, being a God of peace. In fact, 1 John says God is love. God is love. And John 14 gives a, a, you know, a, a description of that, 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 that. It's this relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Loving and obeying and honouring and hearing and delighting and glorifying one another. It's awesome to think we're not in a universe like Friedrich Nietzsche's universe, unchained from the sun, floating off into blackness, no up, no down, no left, no right. Where are we going? What are we doing? Who are we? Who, what did he say? The sponge that wiped away the horizon. You know, there are people who start to really feel that in their lives, and you might meet them sometime during uni, where they really start to get a sense of going, what on earth is it all for? What's it all about? You know, what's the point of it? You know, sometimes that happens after a horrible breakup or they had a, a sports career with an eye on AIS and then an injury ends something they've been working for since they were 10. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. That, sometimes that's when it happens. Sometimes it just slowly creeps up, this, this sinking, sneaking feeling. But to say, no, at the centre of the universe there was a beginning, God made it. He is sustaining it. He is the goal to which it all leads. At the beginning, the centre of the goal is God himself, powerful, just and holy, fundamentally peaceful and unswayed by external factors as if he gets rudely shocked and surprised and caught by surprise. Uh, joyful and glorifying in himself and in his purposes and bringing them about and drawing others into his peace and his joy and his justice. And gracious. 
so that he'll do that even for those who don't deserve, those who've done the wrong, those who are bad and unworthy. He'll actually stoop down to seek and to save and to lift and draw up the weak and the sinful to be pardoned and forgiven and share in his peace and his love and his joy. Amazing. That's God, right? God, Father, Son and Spirit, loving, joyous, peaceful, uh, merciful, truthful, just. Now, last of all, let's think about our life in God. When you come to know God, or you get raised knowing God, um, uh, you're getting a central part of what it is to be human. Not just to use God to get something. I think sometimes people think about God that way, like, I'll use God to get a, whatever it is, a good grades. I'll pray to him and obey him, and then maybe he'll give me good grades, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or wealth and success, or health. That's kind of like a, um, you know, a, an, an idolatrous way of thinking about God, that you have like the God of the sea you pray to to have a safe voyage on the sea, or, a, you know, um, whatever it is. Um, go for it. Um, and uh, that, that's a different way of thinking, whereas to say, no, no, God's the God of everything, God's good and God's true and God's loving, and so just knowing him is, is a thing. Even if I don't get anything else out of it, but just having him, that's a wonderful blessing. In fact, 1 Corinthians 8 even goes a step further and says it's not even just about you knowing God. Uh, this is in 1 Corinthians 8. He says... Um, Look, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 2, doesn't yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. So it's knowing God, loving God, and in fact then going, you know what the cool thing is? God knows me. God sees me, knows me, loves me. So in the first place, our life in God is just knowing God and being known by God. God being God. Knowing God as God, seeing God as God, and being seen by God, resting in that reality. But more, our life in God is communion with God by his spirit. It's not just that we know God out there, um, the way we know of Paris or France, or the way we know of one another at a distance. Or maybe, like to, as, as both Christine and I said, knowing of names on a, a conference registration form. I know of these people. Um, and maybe if they put in, I, I might, from a registration form, know their email address and maybe what they're going to study, perhaps. Or you know, there might be other things that you know of someone as they register for an event. Um, but that's different to then actually being in communion with them. Um, so we don't just know God outside of us, but we know God personally more, though. By his spirit, we are in this intimate communion with God, that God is in us and we are in God. Peace I leave with you, I give to you. The, another helper will come and be with you. And with, if he is with you, then Jesus is with you, then the Father is with you. And their love for one another is their love in you. Amazing. And so even if in my human nature I'm not feeling happy or joyous, I'm not feeling peaceful and mellow, not feeling um, uh, really loving and full, just overflowing with compassion and, and uh, affection, there's, there's this weird miracle to, to say that actually God, the God of love, joy, peace, grace, justice, truth, he's in me. And so there is love, joy, peace, justice, truth, outside of me that is in me. I think we're used to thinking about that when it comes to justification. 
You get taught that I'm sinful, Jesus is righteous, Jesus takes my sinfulness and takes it away. And his death on the cross, it's punished by God on my behalf. Um, And now he gives me his righteousness. And so I'm in God's sight as Jesus is, pardoned and now declared to be right as Jesus is in Christ. Yeah, We're used to thinking about that, that I have an alien righteousness given to me. But I want to say to you that because the Spirit is in you, all, all that God is is for you and is in you. So you can also say, I've got like an alien joy, an alien peace, an alien love that's in me. So that even when I say, you know what, I don't feel peaceful, joyous, loving, but God is in me and I know he is the God of love, joy and peace. And sometimes that is a great relief. That's what enables Job and the psalmists to wail and rail and, and uh, cry out to God. Um, with their, all their turmoil, it's because he's their rock, don't they say? Yeah. He's, he's the one who, who knows and who sees and who is and who continues to be. Yeah. So it's an awesome thought to go, yeah, I, I do want to experience the, the coolness, the, 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 the something of a taste of God's love experienced even down into my brain and my body and my passions. Yeah, I do. And I do want to experience the peace of knowing God loves me, God accepts me, God's working all things out for my good. And I want to experience that in my brain and my feelings and my life. I do. But the cool thing is that when I don't, whether it's because of sleep deprivation or great suffering, greater still than sleep deprivation, um, uh, or it might be that what, however my body is, brain is wired, I just am more inclined to melancholy and, and anxiety, that to go, but I'm in God and God is my peace for me, just as he's my justification for me. God's my joy for me, just as he's my justification for me. God is my love for me, even when I'm struggling, so I'm so worn out or burned out that I just I can't find it hard to, I've run out of, I've reached compassion, charity fatigue, you know. But God is one who is able to love all. And so I don't have to, at every moment of every day, be overflowing with joy and love and, and peace in every single moment. He is in me. It's a cool thought. And so I do want to be like God and pray those things out through into my life. I do want to receive those gifts of God and let them work their way into my life. But embracing that sense that there's a, it's in me and it's outside of me and, and that, that's an okay thing. And so as we go into this semester, we'll think about things like what it means to live a good life, what it means to suffer, the role of meaning and significance and purpose and mission in, in a good life, uh, the role of community and belonging and fellowship rather than individuality in a good life. We'll look at that. We'll also look at uh, some of the, the, what's called the wisdom literature in the Old Testament that, um, that particularly... Um, looks at these kinds of themes in weird and wonderful ways. (laughs) The Psalms, the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes and so on that will help us think about these themes um, from the perspective of different Bible books. But in it all, it's a a really great place to start, I think, to go, God is the centre of all things, including my Christian life and experience. Um, And that Christian life is lived in that interplay between God's objective reality and my subjective experience. Um, but what comes first is God's objective reality. That's what comes first. That's for me, it's in me, it's outside of me. And my subjective experience is just trying to hook onto that and catch up to that and come to terms with that and appreciate that a little bit. Even as, in the end, that's part of my hope.
when Jesus comes back, I'll, um, uh, I'll no longer be sick and mortal. When Jesus comes back, I'll no longer be sinful and tempted. When Jesus comes back, I'll no longer be blown here and there by my virtues and my emotions and my passions all being swept up by, by my sin and by my frailty and by this broken world. I'll then be known, I'll be fully known, I'll fully appreciate and fully experience who God is and what he's done for me. I'll stop there and pray.